Amen. We need to be continually reminded and uh, be expressing to God the reality of His promises to always be with us. Always. If you'll get your Bible out or your iPad or Bible app or whatever you've got and open it up to the book of Proverbs, we are going to talk a little bit about the lion outside. Anybody got this going? I'm sure a few of you do. You know what this sermon is about? Come on. The book of Proverbs is one of the great gifts that God has given to humanity. Uh, All of Scripture is a treasure. It's all inerrant and perfect and wonderful in every way. But different places in Scripture are wonderful for different reasons and minister into our heart in special ways. The book of Proverbs, uh, what makes it so beautiful and so glorious is its practicality. Uh, The way that it just so frankly speaks into our lives on topics that we uh, need to hear and know. And it just, uh, in a way that we can uh, sink our teeth into it, Uh, if the book of Proverbs were organized in such a way to where all of the scriptures pertaining to certain things were all put together in one place, I think would just overwhelm us. And so in the mercy and grace of God, we uh, just are able to get bits and pieces of different things along the way. And really, the book of Proverbs is best described as wisdom in street clothes. That's what it is. It's just practical wisdom that just walks with you every single day. I don't know of anything uh, that would be more profitable to you than to uh, read a piece of uh, the book of Proverbs every day, uh, whether it be a chapter or just a few verses. I've given many times I've expressed how a simple proverb has changed the trajectory of my life. Just one proverb has so stuck with me and literally just altered. God has used many times the book of Proverbs to just change my uh, direction and trajectory just as the Lord has spoken to me through the simplicity and practicality of Proverbs. Now most of, if you want to sort of understand the book of Proverbs, what you have is uh, this things are related to us through dichotomy, through you know, opposites that draws us in. But basically, the book of Proverbs is about wisdom versus foolishness. And then all of the, the subtopics are uh, presented in the context of wisdom and foolishness. But, the, but they all fit into those categories. And so before we begin, I just want to give you a few things to think about. Wisdom is the ability to make the most God-honoring choice in any situation. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. Wisdom is, the, is using the things that you have, so, have seen and learned. So it's more than just simple information. Foolishness, on the other hand, is the inability to discern the consequences of unwise choices. The fool is not presented in the book of Proverbs as someone who doesn't know right from wrong. The fool is primarily presented as the person who... Uh, underestimates or ignores uh, the reality that's right before them and uh, therefore walks directly into consequences that they uh, should have plainly seen. The fool doesn't fear until he falls. That's a good way to remember it. The fool doesn't fear until he falls. A wise person uh, sees danger and responds to that danger before trouble comes. So let's pray and we'll get God to help us if he will. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Proverbs. We thank you for all of the amazing things that you can teach us in it and through it, Lord God. And we pray tonight that you will come into this place. God, give us ears to hear, minister to our hearts through this word. And Lord God, help us to hear from you tonight. We're here because we want to hear from you, Lord. And so I pray you'll use my words and my mouth to be your conduit of this truth unto these people at this time as you have clearly intended. 
And God, we give you glory and praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So under this heading of wisdom versus foolishness, you have all of these various subtopics. So you, you'll have various discussions in the book of Proverbs about humility and pride. You'll have those two things uh, set opposite each other or truthfulness and deceit, um, you know, or just all sorts of various things. Tonight, we're going to talk about laziness. We're going to talk about slothfulness. We're going to talk about what the Bible calls the sluggard. And in the book of uh, Proverbs, what you have is the disciplined person versus the slothful or the sluggish or the, or the sluggard. And those two things are offset. And a, a, a lazy person or a sluggard is one who is habitually lazy or inactive. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about there's so much the Bible has to say about this issue, and I really feel like it's something that's very much neglected. And in the process of me trying to get out from under this broken series, um, some of the emails that I've received about some of the things that uh, God has uh, worked on some of you with regards to through these messages, it became apparent to me that this was a conversation that we needed to have. And so that's why tonight we're going to have that conversation. So I'm going to talk to you about various aspects of a lazy person and what the book of Proverbs has to say about such a person. The first thing I want to address is the lifestyle of the sluggard. I want to talk about the lifestyle of a lazy person. I want you to resist the temptation of thinking of other people and try to just receive what God has to say to you. I'm not saying that you're all lazy because we're certainly not all lazy. But I'm simply saying that before we just begin deflecting this, it may be a case where God has something to say to you and it may be a case where God may have something for you to say to someone, but you've got to receive it before you can um, replicate it. So let's have ears to hear and listen to what God says. Now the, the lifestyle of the sluggard can be uh, summed up in various ways. One of the ways the book of Proverbs teaches us about this is with this unnatural relationship that the lazy person has with their bed. Uh, it seems a little bit awkward because, um, you know, you can be lazy in a lot of ways. But all I'm, I mean, I'm just telling you this is, this is what God says and so this is what God wants us to know and this is what is truthful that one of the key problems with a lazy person is with regards to their relationship with their bed. And the Bible says things like they're hinged to their bed. So if you see up here on the screen Proverbs 26, 14, the Bible says as the door turns on its hinges, so does a lazy man on his bed. That a lazy person uh, wants to spend an inordinate amount of time in their bed. They may rotate from one side to the other, like, like they're on a hinge, but they don't get up and get out. They stay in their bed. Um, it's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really uh, understand this. Uh, I've observed it. Uh, you know, I've, I've watched teenagers who have a, a, just an, a supernatural capacity to sleep and slumber. Uh, I'm not sure how that works. I never had that. I've never had that. I still don't have that. Um, I jump up out of bed, my feet hit the ground, and I'm going 100 miles an hour from the minute I open my eyes. I just am that way. But I'm married to someone who very much enjoys sleeping. I tease her all the time because I tell Lisa that when she sleeps, she actually sleeps with a smile on her face. It's just, a, it's, a, it's unbelievable. I lay there like a, like a zombie trying to go to sleep, and she is just as happy as happy can be. And the Bible talks about uh, how the Lord blesses uh, his uh, faithful ones with good sleep. And I tell you, he blesses her because she closes her eyes, and she is in pure joy. And so, uh, but what the Bible's talking about here is this unnatural relationship with the bed, spending way too much time, becoming uh, uh, a fixture 
in the bed. And so a lazy person would be known as somebody who at times of the day that it would be um, unnatural for a person to be in bed, whether it be 10 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, whatever the case may be, um, there they are hinged to their bed. Proverbs 9, the scripture said, Proverbs 6, verse 9, the scripture says, How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. You shall, so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. And so again, what the Bible is teaching us here is that the sluggard, rather than dealing with the things that need to be dealt with, chooses to spend this time in slumber, in relaxation, and the consequences sneak up on this person without them really realizing that they're coming. They come upon them like an armed man, which is an interesting way of putting it. It's an interesting way of not uh, paying attention to your surroundings. You know, the lazy person doesn't refuse outright to do, to do things. If you study the book of Proverbs, what you'll find is that it's more of procrastination and deceit. It's more about putting things off. Uh, the sluggard's favorite time is always tomorrow. Everything is tomorrow. It's never, no, I won't do that. Um, I don't know if it's because that takes a lot of energy to just have that conversation and say no. So the easiest thing to do is just say, well, I'll do it tomorrow and then never get around to it. I don't know. But the Bible teaches that the sluggard puts things off to the next day. Eventually, they think that they'll get to it, but they never do. And what the Bible will teach us tonight is that opportunity will slip away from us with regards to uh, being lazy one moment at a time. That really it's just a moment by moment slipping away of what could potentially be by putting it off to another time. Now if, if the sluggard's lifestyle is one of slumber and sleeping, then there are other things about the sluggard that will give us uh, indication as to uh, whether or not we need to make some changes in our own lives or whether or not we need to minister to somebody close to us. There's skill involved in being a sluggard, which as I studied this, I was overwhelmed by, I mean, I just kept on digging up Scripture after Scripture after Scripture to the point where it just became, you know, it... it it would have been a series, and I'm sure that, you know, that would have went over like, you know, a lead balloon. We're going to have a series on laziness. You know, there'd be like three of you here next week. So uh, that wasn't going to work. So I, but I really was intrigued by the skill that a sluggard has according to Scripture. They, they have perfected the art of making excuses and utilizing imagination which is interesting to me, which is where I got the title of the sermon. My favorite scripture with regards to laziness is Proverbs 26, 13. It says, the lazy man says, there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion is in the streets. And what the scripture is teaching is that the way that a sluggard or a lazy person keeps themselves from having to do something is that they conjure up this excuse, this idea as to why that's a bad idea and they shouldn't do it. And so when, you know, when somebody approaches them and says, hey, you know, you should go to work today, their response is, well, no, there's a lion out there, that it's not safe out there. There's a reason that we shouldn't do it. And I think the scripture is pointing to the reality that, you know, the excuses and the imagination aren't even sensible or believable, but they're nonetheless what the sluggard uses to... to convince himself because I don't think anybody else is going to believe that there's a lion in the yard or in the road. But yet they just lay there and do nothing convincing themselves of this idea that it's not a good thing to do. You know, if you think about a, a school-aged child and it's the last day of school and school's out for the summer and boy, I mean, they... They come home that day, and I mean, it's like the highlight of the year. I mean, it's, it's every bit as good as Christmas morning. 
no school. I mean, I remember growing up and you actually had three months of summer. I mean, it was like literally by the time I went back to school, I didn't even know how to read. So I, 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 didn't even, I couldn't even spell my name. But it was fantastic because it was like three months of just sheer freedom to do anything I want to do. And so what happens, they come home, they're filled with joy. I mean, man, they sling their backpack in the closet. There's not going to be any books, any reading, any studying, any, you know, it's going to be nothing but wide open joy and fun. And I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to sleep as late as I want to sleep. And there's all these big, grandiose ideas. And about two days later, the same child, or maybe the next day, the same child is standing in the living room with this perplexed look on their face saying, I'm bored. I don't have anything to do, uh, you know, and to which my response was always, well, praise the Lord because the grass needs mowing. <laughs> and that was always the moment when I would get, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the yard. I mean, literally, instantly, I got 14 reasons why one minute I'm bored, I've got nothing to do, I suggest mowing the grass, and I've got 14 reasons why that's a bad idea. And don't worry, Dad, I will gladly mow it tomorrow. Yeah, I'm still waiting on that hamburger, by the way. Um, you see, a person who is predisposed to do as little work as possible is always going to have an arsenal of excuses because that's what's necessary in order to, you know, perpetuate this lifestyle. You've got to be able to reason out why all of the things that need to be done don't need to be done. And so uh, it, it just, and, and what happens is it escalates from these excuses and these imaginations and and as they are internalized, they become pride, essentially, as you start to believe your own lies. And then it, it barricades you from any honest self-assessment. So what happens is if you encounter a, a mature person who's a sluggard or who's lazy, if you've ever done that, you know the, the difficulty that comes with that. It's literally one of the most um, just impossible endeavors to face because they have they have built such an a wall and they have such an arsenal of reasoning that they've come to believe is true that to get them to do something is literally just 10 times harder than doing it yourself which is what everyone does which is then in turn what continues this process the bible says in proverbs 26:16 that the lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. See what happens? It becomes pride. It becomes as they begin to believe their own uh, ideas and their own excuses that what happens, these, uh, these false uh, ideas that become real in their own mind build up this pride that is like a fortress around them and... You know, it, it may just be simple things. You know, it's very dangerous to say simple things that are uh, harmful and true or harmful and untrue over and over repetitively to yourself or to your loved ones because what happens is it gets ingrained in our spirit and causes problems. For example, uh, I do not think that it is a healthy thing to say I'm not a morning person. Now, you may not be a morning person. You may never be a morning person, but I certainly wouldn't be telling my kids that they're not a morning person because what you're doing is you're instilling in them, to me, that is a negative thing. Well, what are you saying by that? To me, that's saying that I can't do certain things in the morning because I'm not a morning person, to which I always say, well, you may not be, but that's like me saying, well, you know, sorry I punch you in the face, but I've got a bad temper. Well, I mean, well, wait a minute. If I've got a problem with my temper, 
Well, then I need to address that. Well, if you've got a problem with accomplishing things in the morning, well, then you need to address that. However many pots of coffee it takes for you to address it, you need to address it, however it goes. But when you just repeat something to yourself like you're not something, and what happens is or you, every time you endeavor to do something, uh, you think about, you're consumed with thoughts about there might be an easier way to do this. You know, there might be an easier way to do this. But most of the time, the easiest thing to do is to get it done. Not to spend all your time searching for an easier way to do it. Because the person that searches for the easiest way to do it usually never gets anything accomplished. And here's the thing. The value of hard work is the hard part. That's the value of it. And so if, if again, if we've predisposed ourselves to do the least amount of work possible, we've already set out on the wrong foot. We're already heading in the wrong direction. See, there's skills that the sluggard has, and there's spoils that the sluggard has. There are spoils to being a sluggard. Uh, They're just not the spoils that one might want. The full reward in most situations only comes at completion. Now, let's think about this together for a second. The full reward of most things only comes at the time of completion. And so whatever is left partially completed can only be partially enjoyed. And so you can begin to plug scenarios into that. You know, a person who partially builds their house... Now, they, there is a reward for that because you, you are living in a partially built house, which is better than no house at all. You do have a roof over your head, but you do not enjoy your home to the degree that the person who completes the project does. You understand? And so the degree to which you complete something determines the degree to which you enjoy something. And so the sluggard basically uh, creates a lifestyle where they just... Uh, embrace a reduced level of enjoyment for things. They just accept less than what it could be. They don't concern themselves with what it would be if they saw something to completion. They just simply accept the fact that by living in something half done or by doing something half the way, then half the way is better than no way. And so some of you are immediately reliving conversations that either you had with your parents or you've had with your children about halfway completed projects and about and someone either you trying to you know tell your parents or your children trying to tell you that the fact that something's halfway completed is far better than none at all and I would submit that it is somewhat better but again the value of work is the hard part And the value of discipline is seeing something through to the end. And so no matter how inconsequential it may seem, it is a very bad thing to begin the process of partially completing things. That's a very harmful pattern to begin in your life. Proverbs 12 says, The lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but diligence is a man's precious possession. See, that's one of those proverbs that would just sit on me all day. I just love that proverb. Because that's the kind of proverb that you can just look at and think about. There's so much there. Think about what that's saying. Think about the fact that the lazy man, he got up, he got his gun, he went out into the forest, and he hunted. And not only did he do all those things, he actually killed an animal. And he brought it home, uh, maybe. But he never roasted it. He never ate it. In other words, he, he went halfway. He did certain things. He didn't just do nothing, but he got to eat nothing. In other words, the reward eluded him because he didn't see it through to the end. Which I find compelling that... 
You see, what is a precious possession is to the one who's diligent. The blessing comes to the completer, the person who sees things through. You want to discipline yourself to see things through, even if they are small things, even if they seem inconsequential, because if you are diligent in the small things, it will train you to be diligent in the bigger things. What happens with the lazy person is that they squander their opportunity. And again, it's moment by moment, because I want you to think about this. The lazy person had every intention of eating this animal. He didn't wake up and put on his hunting clothes and and get his uh, gun ready and get all his ammunition and his supplies and his tree stand and hike out into the woods and climb up in a tree and sit there for a couple hours and shoot a deer. He didn't do all that with the full intention of squandering that opportunity and never uh, harvesting that animal to eat. That wasn't his intention at all. He fully intended to do the whole thing, to see it through to completion, to come home and to bless his family with some fresh meat. He just didn't see it through. He, He began the process. He did the first steps He even saw success. It wasn't that he quit before uh, something happened. It was even after he was successful in the initial endeavor that he gave up. Now, that's a puzzling scenario for me. Who does that? A lot of people do this. A lot of people do this. Set out with every intention of doing the right thing, with every intention of completing a a task or, or, or a project or giving themselves to something, and even early on seeing some success, but fizzling out in the process and never reaping the harvest or the reward. It is a horrible, horrible uh, loss. It, what, a, what a great character deficiency. Proverbs 19.24 says, A lazy man buries his hand in the bowl and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. Now we take it to the next level. Now we, we see a picture of a person who has a bowl of something to eat sitting right before him. He doesn't even have to move to get to it. He can just stretch his arm out, put it in the bowl, and put the food in his mouth. But because this is just a little bit too much work, we're just going to sit there with our hand in the bowl. The picture is is that because you think to yourself, well, now who, who would do that? The same person who would go through all the trouble to kill an animal and never roast it, that person. Who would, who would, whose family is hungry or, you know, is just having greens yet again with no meat because dad killed an animal but didn't really feel like dragging it home and cleaning it. And so there's no meat. Who who would put their hand in a bowl and not so much as bring it to their mouth again? Now, none of you would do that, I'm certain. But just for kicks, let's let's think about a couple instances that might fit into the scenario of Proverbs 19.24. Okay, how about that? You ever walked into the bathroom in your house, taken a seat, only to then notice that on the toilet paper rack is this nice cardboard sleeve. You can just spin that sucker as long as you want. There ain't no paper coming off it. You ever had that situation happen? Now, all you have to do is either, you know, depending on the... uh, the 
philosophy that's going on in your restroom dynamic, either reach on the back of the commode and pull the, you know, the next roll off and pop that sucker in, or lean over under the cabinet, or you know, if you're at my house, lean forward into the cabinet and there's 72,000 rolls piled up in there like you know, we're doomsday preppers. I'm not really sure what's going on there, but... You know, we might be hungry, but by golly, come nuclear war, Lisa's going to have TP. I guarantee you. There it is. And all it's right there. All you got to do is just grab it. You know, you, it's not like somebody just didn't even know. They took the last square. How did that happen? No, they knew. They knew. Their hand was in the bowl, but they thought... Uh, it's too much work to raise it up here. I think I'm going to let that ride on dad. How about the infamous kitchen trash can? Now, at my house, the trash can in the kitchen is a rigid container. So it doesn't matter how flexible the bag may be. It doesn't matter uh, what consistency or quality or whatever the case may be of the, the, the brand or form of bag that you place in it. It is a fixed-shaped cylinder made of stainless steel. The reason it's made of stainless steel, I'm convinced, is because everyone in my family has determined that their trying to set the Guinness World Record for how much stuff they can compact down into that thing without having to actually take the bag out and put it in the container outside. Literally, it is common for me to have to dance around the kitchen with the bag to try to get it dislodged from inside of the container it is so tightly packed I mean it's almost like if you had a professional team of trash compactors someone in my house would get drafted number one overall in that draft I'm pretty sure now the can is two steps from the back door the receptacle that the bag goes in is two steps beyond the back door. So you're literally four steps from accomplishing the process, which to me is far less work than jumping up and down on that last little, you know, aluminum can to wedge it into the corner of that space. So who would have their hand in the, bag, in the bowl and not lift it up to eat? I think a lot of us. I think a lot of us. What about the house of the sluggard? Well, the Bible speaks in great detail in multiple places about the house of the sluggard. For example, in Proverbs 24, the scripture says that I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. And when I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. Now, here's what the writer of, of Proverbs is teaching us. That not only is, the, uh, is the, the place inhabited by the lazy person overgrown, but he goes into great detail to talk about the field of the lazy man and the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. That those two things are synonymous that the overgrown field and the, and the, the, the out-of-shape vineyard are one is a lazy person, the other is a person devoid of understanding, and those two are the same. That a person who would have responsibility over a piece of property who would 
uh, squander the usefulness of that property by not doing the things that are necessary in order to utilize the property for the uh, condition for which it was provided by God for is not only lazy, but they're ignorant. They, they, they're squandering something that could be such a gift. And if you think about it, uh, land has a high dividend, doesn't it? Yes, indeed. If everything worked like land, we'd be in great shape. Think about it. If your car held up like Bill's Field, you'd drive that sucker forever. I mean, just consider the way land is in its usefulness and its durability as opposed to any man-made object. There's no comparison. It's not even in the same universe. Land, yes, is it work? Absolutely it's work. But it's, it's a high yield for, for a little work. I mean, yes, you have to work it, but look at what it does for you. Most of what land does for you does not require any effort on your part whatsoever. You're responsible for the maintenance and the upkeep, but it does all the work on its own. It would kind of be like if you had a car and all you had to do was put gas in it and it automatically grew new tread on the tires and new pads on the brakes and it automatically changed its own oil. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Well, that's what a vineyard does. That's what a field does. You can use that thing over and over and over and over from generation to generation to generation. And yet, the lazy person or the person devoid of understanding just allows it to be overgrown and become useless. I don't know if this particular lazy person, I'm assuming because it's his property, built the wall. So at some time... The property was cared for because there's a wall there. Someone at some point in some time kept this place up. But now it's fallen into the hands of maybe the next generation or whatever the case may be where someone has now neglected it. And so what was once there and once functioned as a, as a purpose because the, the writer of Proverbs can see that it was a vineyard, can see that there was a wall there, but now it's all broken down. But he says, when I saw it, I considered it well. I thought about it. I looked at it. I examined it. And I thought, there's instruction there from seeing that. By looking at that raggedy, run-down farm, by seeing that broken-down vineyard, by, by obviously seeing what it once was and what it could be and now what it's not, I received instruction. I received instruction. I received instruction that the person that lives there is devoid of understanding. I received instruction as to that's what happens when you don't care for the things that you're given. That's, I received instruction on multitudes of, le- of levels, of things that I ought not do. You see, when a person is lazy, it's not in its own category, but in many ways it is different from many of the other ways in which we might struggle that we would lump into this category. Because the the thing about being lazy is the desire is never satisfied. You see, let's suppose that I was preaching this cheerful message tonight on gluttony. Wouldn't that be joyful? But I'm not, but let's say I was. You see... Laziness and gluttony are different because a glutton achieves satisfaction. A glutton will reach the point where they wave the white flag like, okay, no more Twinkies. I've had all I can take. You know, after three boxes of Oreos, I'm out, you know. Laziness, never, it's never satisfied. The urge to do nothing, the more nothing you do, the more nothing you want to do. You see, it just builds and builds and builds and builds. There's no, you, you, it never culminates. There's never a moment where I'm so rested, I'm so, I'm so refreshed, I'm so, I, I, I'm so filled with, with sleep 
that I'm ready to get out and do something. Not for the lazy person. The lazy person just can't get enough. It's just on to the next thing and avoiding the next work and, and getting around it and getting over it. And This is why the price is so high for the lazy person. I mean, it is extraordinarily high. The price to change. Listen, when a, when a, when a child is allowed to grow up and become lazy... There is a certain point of maturity where it is a tremendous problem. Because the price to change is so astronomically high. And even with all of the uh, struggles that beset the lazy person, so many times it's like talking to a brick wall because... They have, uh, they have limited themselves. They have uh, just built a fortress around them and are unable to hear truth. They've convinced themselves of something that's not true. And so when you show up with your wisdom and your ideas and your big talk about, hey, this is wrong and we need to change and we got to start doing this, well, they don't, you, don't, you think you're the first one to bring that to their attention? Oh, they know that. They've perfected the art of either squandering uh, all of the blessing or just taking just a little bit of blessing and being satisfied with that. You see, there, the, the life of a sluggard is filled with pain. There is uh, quite a bit of pain that comes with being lazy. The Bible says about the pain, Proverbs 21, that the desire for the lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. See, the Bible paints a picture that the, the lazy man lives in his own fantasy. And the fantasy is, is driven by wishing. The lazy person wishes that all these things were true. That, the, again, doesn't, doesn't say that I won't do that. Doesn't say that I shouldn't do that. Doesn't say that I'm not going to do that. Says, oh, I'll do that at a later time. It's always this diversion because it's, again, this fantasy, this, this world of wishing, which is a substitute for doing, which ultimately becomes his or her demise. You see, because uh, the longer you exist in, in wishful thinking, then the more you become accustomed to substituting that for actually doing, then you have fed yourself this wishing and not doing, and therefore that ends up being your demise because to climb back up that mountain is so, so very difficult. That's why the Bible says that uh, his desire ultimately kills him. Proverbs 13, 4 says, The soul of the lazy man desires and has nothing. But the soul of the delight of the diligent shall be made rich. So this lazy person, again, is filled with this desire. Is, is filled with this wishful thinking. But his hands are empty. He yields nothing. But the diligent person will be made rich. So the lazy person is restless with desire. Is unsatisfied in their desire. But helpless in the mess that they've made of their life, and therefore they're tormented by the prosperity of the diligent around them. I mean, I just began to recount in my mind the conversations that I've had over years and years of pastoral ministry and talking with people who struggled in this area of their life. And the amount of angst that develops in their heart, the amount of, of discontentment and uh, just uh, uh, displeasure with those diligent people around them. So, you, Because the, the thinking is, is that one of the ways you help a person who's lazy is you point them to, well, look at so-and-so and look at how they do it and look at how well that's working out for them. But what you find is that that simply incites their rage. You see, that diligent person around them just simply fuels their, uh, their anger and their resentment and further entrenches them into, I am just going to sit tight and, and hunker down where I am in this mess that I've made that, again, is maybe possible to work myself out of, but 
there's got to be an easier way to do it, and I'm pretty sure there's a lion in the yard, and so the best thing to do is to just wait it out. And so on and on it goes. And you see, the problem with all of this is, is that God created all of us to bear responsibility. As image bearers, we are responsibility bearers. That every man, woman, and child was born into this life, created by God in the image of God to bear responsibility. Every person is called to bear responsibility. And when you do not do that, you rage against the very creator who made you. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 2, uh, the Scripture says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. So the Lord's finished His creation. On the seventh day, God ended His work, which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work, which He had done. So the first thing I want to point out to you is that God is a working God. In the same way that no one is going to say that, wow, creating everything in six days must have been a real stretch for God. I mean, it must have really, it really zapped him. It must have taken everything in him to be able to do that. No, this unbelievable, amazing, sovereign, all-powerful God that we serve is able to do anything he wants to do, any way he wants to do, any time he wants to do, with anyone he wants to do it. But at the same time, he describes his own activity as work. He wants you to know that he is a working God and that you, ma'am and sir, and young person, have all been created in his image. And part of bearing his image is bearing the responsibility to work or to have responsibility over things. And then in verse 15, God brings it all together and says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend it and keep it. You see, that even in perfection, there's work. That when, all, when, there's, when, there, when the world is void of sin, when everything is as it's supposed to be, when everything is operating in perfection under the rule and authority of God, God's a working God and His creation is a working creation. That Adam had responsibility in the garden. Well, you really got to spend some time thinking about that. That listen, why, why do some of us find it so uh, troublesome to bear responsibility? That, oh, I, you know, I don't mind being a part of that, or I don't mind being around that, or I don't, but I don't want to be the one responsible for it. You do understand that that's part of who we are, that you are responsible for things. You see, if you're here tonight, you are responsible for yourself. If you're married, you're responsible for your part in the marriage. If you have children, you're responsible for those children. I mean, you bear responsibility. You are going to be called on account, whether you like it or not. You can try to shuck all the responsibility you want, but you're going to give account for the things that have been due you, deemed to you. You see, the real tragedy in this whole conversation is, is not that the lazy person suffers from this infirmity, which is what, you know, as I was putting all this together, I was doing some research, just finding out, you know, what's going on right now with regards to, you know, this idea of laziness in our culture. You know, just because I know that it's something wacky, and I thought, well, let's just see how wacky it is. Again, mind is blown when I get on the Internet and find out that there are multiple websites now that are propagating this idea that laziness is an infirmity. It is a diagnosable infirmity that's inflicted upon someone so that someone can say, I can't help it, I've been diagnosed with laziness. Huh? Are you kidding me? No. That laziness has now become a condition. In fact, I wouldn't doubt it that pretty soon you'll be able to collect some benefits for being lazy. I got diagnosed. My doctor said I'm lazy. Okay. Here we go.
The problem with laziness is not that it's an infirmity. The problem with laziness is that it's sin. It's sin. That's the only way you need to understand it. It's absolutely, positively rebellion against a good and loving God who intended for you to be a way other than slothful. Proverbs 22.6 talks a little bit about uh, what we might do with regards to curing laziness. You see, God has, uh, in every case, made provision for the likelihood of those things which seek to destroy us and set our lives off course. He's made provision for all of those things, including laziness. God has a plan to eradicate laziness amongst His people. Now, what is that plan? It's called parents. Parents are the antidote to laziness, supposedly. So the Bible says in Proverbs 22, 6, which you all know, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now what I want us to do, I mean, I've talked extensively about this passage of Scripture, and I think it's one of the most misunderstood places in all the Bible. But what I want to talk to you about tonight for just a moment with regards to this issue of parenting is what... What does the word train up mean? What is training? What is that? And oh, how I wish that when I became a Christian and my children were teeny tiny, that someone had sat me down and explained this to me. I'm not making any excuses. I'm just saying that would have been awfully beneficial for those of you that are in the room that have small children. God bless you. Here you go. Merry Christmas. Training is the artificial amplification of consequences to foolish choices before the child's actions are big enough to scar them or cause permanent damage. Training is amplifying the consequences of foolishness. Your job as a mom and a dad is to make sure that when your child acts foolishly, it hurts. And if you buy into this a modern American mindset that your job and every teacher in here does not need to amen because we all know that this is true. That your job is to prevent little Johnny from ever suffering or hurting. You're destroying the child. The primary purpose of training is to make a child accustomed to pain. Because if you become accustomed to a little bit of pain, it will prevent you from suffering a great deal of pain. And so what you want to do, what we want to do as, a, as the body of Christ is come around our families and we want to say, we want to train up our children by beginning at a young age. We want to amplify the ramifications of foolishness. That whenever your child does something foolish, the last thing you ought to do is cover for them or shelter them or keep them from suffering the consequences of that foolishness. Because first of all, the Bible teaches in Proverbs 22 that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That, it, that your child comes pre-programmed, predisposed in their sinful nature to foolishness. Therefore, the rod of correction will drive it far from them. That the, the, the Bible's antidote to foolishness is pain. Boy, that's a popular topic, isn't it? I'll probably go to jail tomorrow just for preaching this. I mean, we've already established that you can't even whip your child and play in the NFL. No, we can't do that. You can take steroids. You can shoot somebody. You can do every kind of drug you want to and continue to play if you just mediate. The, but if you spank your child, you're out for a whole season. Interesting. 
You see, when a child is five years old and they tell a lie, it's not a big deal. It's not a life or death moment. That lie is not going uh, to create some giant uh, problem or it's not going to you know, bury the family in some you know, horrible situation. But when that lie is overlooked in a five-year-old child and then it begins to breed and it's overlooked in the 10-year-old and then it's overlooked in the 15-year-old, what you will end up is a person who will then lie to their spouse because when they were five, there was no consequences for their foolishness. You see, when, a, when an 11-year-old disrespects authority, well, maybe the authority was being too harsh. Maybe there's some reason. Maybe they were just having a bad day. Maybe there's a lot of other things, you know, that play into this. And we can just maybe, 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 maybe. But here's what I'm telling you is that when a, an 11-year-old child disrespects authority in their life, if that's ignored, if that's allowed to happen, it will yield disaster in their future. If they grow up unable to operate under the authority of those that God places in their life, it will be a tremendous problem. Now, how do you think we ended up in a state where, I don't mean Mississippi, I mean a state where the marriage in the church has no greater odds of succeeding than a marriage in the world? I wonder how this happened. Could it be that the reason why we have so few really great, solid, God-honoring marriages is because we have husbands who quit halfway into the job because we have wives who aren't diligent to see things through to the end because we have conditioned and predisposed as children our generation to grow up by protecting them from the consequences of foolishness so when we grow up we act a fool this is the problem and so lest you leave here tonight and think, well, that was a great little talk about laziness, but that's not really my problem because I'm not a lazy person. You need to think of all the ramifications that fall under this heading. You see, because what, what will you hear? I want you to think of everything I've taught you tonight about laziness, and now I want you to think about what happens when me and you go over and sit down with a husband and wife whose marriage is in a shambles. How is that conversation going to go? You tell me that what we're not going to hear is that one party or the other is going to say, well, I would do the right thing, but they're doing this, they're doing this, they're doing that. In other words... Basically, I would be a good husband, but there's a lion in the yard. I would be a devoted wife, but there's a lion in the yard. That I can't go out there and do that because of all these other things that are happening. Whereas, so somehow, because someone else isn't doing what they're supposed to do, we now can just shuck our responsibility and do whatever we want to do. Because doing what we ought to do, especially in a case where someone else isn't supporting us and doing what they ought to do, is going to take diligence. It's definitely going to be hard work. And if we've always tried to go the easy way, if we've always tried to do things the simple way, then guess what happens? We don't see it through. So don't think for one second that these little things that are happening in your family are of no consequence because they are of great consequence. And you, whether you receive it or not, just as I, whether I receive it or not, will give account for that which I am responsible for. And that's a hard thing for me to say. That'd be a whole lot easier if I didn't have children. You see... The Bible would call us to say as the people of God, you know what? My family's like an overgrown vineyard. 
My marriage looks like a field that's been ignored. My walls are broken down. But rather than sit here and make excuses and dream up reasons why I'm not going to be able to do it, what I need to do is unhinge myself from my bed. I need to get up and be the man or woman of God that He's called me to be. And I need to get out there and I need to start weeding that garden one pool at a time, one thorn at a time, one tree at a time. Little by little by little in the hot blazing sun. That's how it got the way it was supposed to be in the beginning. And that's the way it's going to be to get back to that. And you know what? Is it going to be hard? Yes. Is it going to be exhausting? Yes. Is it going to take twice as long than it ought to? Absolutely. But it's what God called us to do. And this isn't the reason to do it. But I think in the grace and mercy of God, once you get to where you need to be, it's a whole lot easier to maintain something than it is to start from some broke down thing. And I just think that's God's mercy. You see, we live in this world where everybody thinks that what they need is an adventure. I mean... Everybody just wants an adventure. They're looking for the next thing. You know, what's going to be fun? What's going to be enjoying? What's going to be exciting? What's going to be... We don't need an adventure. We need to get to work. That's what we need. We need to work. And not work at the things that, you know, maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, I ain't pastor. I'm, you're preaching to the choir, man. I'm, I'm the only one working. And I can't keep up with everything that's falling down around me. Well, no, ma'am, no, sir. I'm sure that the Bible is true. And it says that God's not going to put more on you than you can handle. So you're not working correctly. You're not. That if you work... At the things that God's called you to do, it will work. That's all I know because that's what God says. And here's the greatest danger of all. Is that eventually, 100% of the time, laziness is going to bleed over and infiltrate our spiritual life. And when that happens... It's a whole lot worse than a rundown vineyard or a neglected field. The scripture says in Romans chapter 12 to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. Now notice what it says in verse 11. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit serving the Lord. It's like the Apostle Paul is speaking directly into our heart. And he's saying, is this going to be easy? No. Is it going to come natural? Not at all. But you know what you better not do? Don't lag in diligence. That that God's called us to persevere. He's called us to see this thing through. Are you tonight applying the same pursuit that you have towards the places in your life that you take great pride. Because I realize how this filters through many of the hearts in this room. You know, this isn't really my problem. I'm a hard-working person. You know, I get up every day, I go to work, I do my part, I, you know, and maybe the people around me don't do as they should, but I do my part. Okay. That may be true. But my question is, are you applying the same pursuit of excellence that you're giving to your work or your career or whatever it is you find yourself being diligent in? Are you giving the same pursuit to discovering the riches of who Jesus is and the wonders that are uh, found in His Word? In other words... To quote the wisest person who ever lived. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his soul? In other words, this issue, before it can be 
before this chapter can be closed, before this discussion can be ended, it has to come back to the point of whether you see yourself or someone that you care about or even someone that you're responsible for as lazy, the ultimate question is, what are you doing with regards to your spiritual walk and your development? Are you giving your best to what matters most? Because if you're not, all of your effort in whatever arena it is that you are worshiping is going to leave you empty and unsatisfied. As if you were just a lazy, unproductive person. Because that's not what God called you to do and created you for. We're all created to assume responsibility. And you know what that foremost responsibility is? It's to glorify Him. And so if there's a field that you've got to work in, if there's a chore that needs to never go undone, it is the glorifying of your amazing and wonderful Heavenly Father in your life. That is the preeminent call upon our lives. That is the one area of our life that we cannot neglect or ever be lazy in or else all of our worldly pursuits are but filthy rags let's stand and bow our heads